The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Harnessing the Power of the Latest Clinical and Research Advances in Small Cell Lung Cancer, How to Accelerate Progress and Improve Patient Outcomes with Current and Emerging Therapies. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash ZZA860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Welcome to this CME program, Harnessing the Power of the Latest Clinical and Research Advances in Small Cell Lung Cancer, How to Accelerate Progress and Improve Patient Outcomes with Current and Emerging Therapies. Today's faculty uh, is listed on your screen. Um, Taufiko Wenikoko from University of Pittsburgh. I'm joined today and in planning this CME program by Dr. Hossein Bogai from Fort Chase as well as Dr. Ann Chen from Yale University School of Medicine. So our goals for today is going to be first to equip you with knowledge and skills to make the most of the current standard of care therapies available for patients with small cell lung cancer, and also to augment your awareness of emerging data on small cell lung cancer subtypes, as well as investigational therapies that have shown some promise in this disease. To Get us going. I will provide some updates in terms of where we are currently with standard of care options for our patients. So making the most of current first-line treatment options for small cell lung cancer. So let's get going with how we get to where we are now and why we're doing what we do for our patients. So for this audience, uh, well-informed, it's actually more of a reminder than anything new. Uh, in PAR 133 study that tested atezolizumab with chemotherapy in patients with extensive stage disease, enrolled patients with measurable disease, good performance status, and required patients with asymptomatic brain metastasis to come on board, but they have to have that treated prior to enrollment. 403 patients randomized to standard of care, platinum, metoposide plus placebo as control, and then addition of atezolizumab to carboplatin and etoposide. The stratification factors there by sex, ECOG performance status, and presence or absence of brain metastasis. With co-primary endpoint of overall survival and progression-free survival, these patients show that the addition of atezolizumab to chemotherapy significantly improved the overall survival for patients with hazard ratios shown there of 0.76 that was statistically significant, and that translated into improvements in median overall survival estimate of 12.3 months for those treated with chemo plus atezolizumab compared to patients treated with chemotherapy with placebo. Very mature data set of the time of presentation with median follow-up of 22.9 months. And this set the standard for us in terms of the use of atezolizumab and chemotherapy. At this year's World Lung, Dr. Stephen Liu presented the Umbrella A study, which is an extension study of the Empire 133. This was really taking patients who are more or less long-term survivors and then following them on after the study had closed and looking at what the outcome for those patients uh, was. This is the long-term overall survivor from this cohort of patients on the Umbrella a trial. Very small cohort of patients, but more importantly is that it gives us a very reliable data set of what the long-term outcome is with the addition of atezolizumab to chemotherapy. So now we have a benchmark in terms of five-year overall survival of about 12%. Historically, when we talk to our patient, this number is usually around 3 to 4%. So why it's a modest improvement is more than tripling of what we will currently expect to happen to our patient if we just treated them with chemotherapy alone. And when we look at the site of progression on the Empower 133 study, as I mentioned before, patients were, were allowed to go on trial if they had treated brain metastasis, and we know that brain is one of the sites of failure of most of our therapies. Uh, across the board, patients treated with atezolizumab compared to, uh, along with chemotherapy, showed lower likelihood of progressing at every site that you looked at. And especially when you look at um, patient progressing in the adrenal gland, that is where you actually see dramatic improvement with the addition of atezolizumab. We've always known as muscle goes to the adrenal gland. 
We do not understand that biology, but this data is actually very, very interesting, showing that significant uh, doubling of the rate of adrenal uh, progression compared to uh, patient treated with atezolizumab and chemotherapy. How about intracranial progression, another site of uh, a common side of disease progression? Uh, patient treated with atezolizumab also had better intracranial control of disease, uh, suggesting to us that not only do we have systemic benefits from immunotherapy added to chemotherapy, this also translated into better control of the disease in the brain. Uh, whether this is a direct reflection of the antibody getting into the brain or stimulation of peripheral immune cells getting into the brain remains to be sorted out. But regardless, we are very, very uh, glad to see this type of data showing that brain is not going to be a sanctuary site that you're not going to improve on when you treat patients with chemotherapy and immunotherapy. Switching gears to the other trial that also established another standard for us is the Caspian study. Similar design to the Empowered uh, 133 with a few caveats. This allowed patients with untreated brain metastasis if they were asymptomatic, allowed for the use of both carboplatin and cisplatin, and also included a third arm where you added tremolimumab to the valumab, and then you had maintenance the valumab uh, post-treatment. Optional PCI was allowed uh, for patients. This is the overall survival, three-year overall survival update, also showing that this translated into durable improvement in overall survival when the valumab was added to chemotherapy. Hazard ratio similar to what we saw with Impar 0.71 translated into median estimate of 12.9 months compared to 10.5 months. And with the similar to the Impar study, the Caspian also showed benefits of this strategy in terms of brain control. Uh, whether a patient had brain metastasis at baseline or not, there was improved outcome, uh, both for OS especially, but also some trend with PFS. Uh, when patients were treated with dovalumab and chemotherapy. So at the current time, we have these two established standards, at least here in the U.S. Uh, there are other regimens uh, worldwide uh, that have been developed and potentially also changing the standard of care in other parts of the world. I just want to quickly put this plug in for saplulimab, which was similarly designed to the Empower and the Caspian trial. Uh, this is actually an anti-PD one, so that helps us to con I know, answer the question of is it only anti-PDL one that works in small cell? So the addition of saplumimab to chemotherapy also performed, outperformed chemotherapy plus placebo uh, in this randomized double-blind uh, phase three trial. Uh, enrolled mostly in, in, uh, in Asia. It's tantalizing to see that median overall survival estimate of 15.4 months and hazard ratio of 0.63 months. Whether this reflected the patient population or any unique activity of saplumimab, I think at this point is just a uh, hypothesis generating and nothing that we can uh, confirm. How about improving on what we currently have as standard? So if anti-PD-1, PDL one can improve on chemotherapy, perhaps layering on another checkpoint inhibitor will get us to where we want to be to raise that tail of the curve. And that was the rationale for conducting the skyscraper to a phase three trial that added teragolumab and antitigid antibody to atezolizumab and chemotherapy. Uh, unfortunately, uh, this study failed to meet its primary endpoint, uh, both for PFS as well as OS. There was really no daylight between those on the experimental arm compared to patient on the control arm. And um, why this was disappointing, I don't think it means the end of antitigid strategy in this disease. And in fact, we do have the key vibe 008, which is also testing a similar concept of adding an antitrigid antibody to a backbone of chemotherapy plus anti-PD-1 or uh, PDL one So we're going to wait for the result of the MK7684A, uh, which is a co-formulation of the antitrigid and pembrolizumab along with chemotherapy compared to atizolizumab with chemotherapy. So... Uh, with that background and uh, overview of where we are currently, let's consider a quick case and what we're going to do. 65-year-old man, past medical history of hypertension, COPD, and hyperlipidemia, heavy smoker with 45-pack year smoking history, came to the PCP complaining of cough, generalized fatigue for three months, good performance status. 
X-ray showed left upper lobe opacity. CT scan confirmed a 4-centimeter lobulated mass with associated hyaline mediastinal adenopathy. Patient was anemic and thrombocytopenic. Bronchoscopy and biopsy confirmed small cell lung cancer. No evidence of involvement in the brain. However, PET-CT scan did show evidence of hepatic hypodensities and extensive bone marrow uptake. Now in your clinic to discuss further management. Based on what we've discussed, for my faculty participants, also I will invite you to weigh in. What would you recommend for this patient? Dr. Bogain? Yeah, so um, the uh, uh, presence of anemia and thrombocytopenia is a little bit uh, disturbing, obviously, perhaps suggesting that some degree of bone marrow infiltration, which is um, uh, unfortunately something we see with this disease. And if I remember correctly, in the old days, uh, bone marrow biopsy was part of a staging system for small cell, but you know we've gotten away from that practice for good reason, really. Um, so despite the fact that there is some anemia and thrombocytopenia, considering that this is metastatic small cell, I would probably still choose a standard treatment option with platinum metoposide, perhaps with some dose attenuation for both carboplatin and uh, metoposide, which is what I use, uh, with some growth factor support. Uh, and I still come in with a lot of the approved uh, checkpoint inhibitors in this case um, and monitor patient on a weekly basis with counts and support um, uh, as much as needed for myelosuppression. I'm hoping that with that strategy, uh, you can actually gradually recover some uh, bone marrow function. Unfortunately, as we continue with the treatments, we know that's probably going to come back, but that's more of a treatment effect, not the disease. I would agree, I would agree with that. I, I'm on service this past week, and I have already seen this patient. <laughs> so, um, you know, these are these are folks that sometimes show up in the office. Actually, sometimes they show up in the hospital because they're very sick. Uh, and and if they are in the hospital, somebody that we actually sometimes start chemotherapy in the hospital. So um, there are ways to get Im immunotherapy in the hospital as well. Our, our system hasn't necessarily figured that out yet, but certainly getting started with um, platinum doublet and, um, you know, adding on the, the immunotherapy, whether it's a Tizo or Dervalumab, as soon as they get out of the office, it would be a standard approach. And Agree with you. You might, if this is a frailer person, you might dose attenuate more uh, and support them through. Um, I think it's important to note that sometimes if you have a liver full of Mets and the LFTs are very high, that you can actually also treat, and that will help the that especially if there's not other issues going on and you you don't think there's obstruction, but it's really due to the disease, and yeah. you should really really treat, and and that will help. Thank you. I do agree with both of you. And we, you, using this case to really illustrate the fact that between the two regimens that we have now, very difficult to choose between one or the other, but at times, clinical features of the patient might lead us in one direction or the other. You know, one strategy would be dose attenuation for carbo. If it's someone that we feel could be a cisplatin uh, mm -hmm. candidate as well because of the cytopenias, that could also be the way to go. But as we know, not many of our patients are eligible for cisplatin. So with that, uh, thank you. I'll now hand it over to Dr. Chang to take us through what we do for patients after they've progressed on frontline therapy. Great. Thanks for having me today. Um, uh, and, you know, I think that this is a disease where patients do very well. Um, but unfortunately, we, we know that they're going to progress. And so this is, I think, where we need to make the most of our second line options and and then Dr. Borgai will talk about other new options that are on the horizon. Um, what data do we have in this, in this uh, what, what recent data do we have in this, uh, to answer this question? And actually there's a, a, a trial, phase three trial that came out and it was published in 2020. And it was for patients uh, 90 days out from, from their uh, platinum doublet. They were rechallenged. Uh, with either topotechian or combination uh, chemotherapy platinum doublet, and so it was the the trial was um, about 80 patients in each arm, and it was powered for PFS. And you can see the the panel on the left shows you PFS, um, and there was a benefit for for combination chemotherapy over topo. It was the PFS was about uh, almost five months versus three months, the hazard ratio of of almost six. And the overall survival benefit, uh, there were no, there was no difference there. 
Um, in terms of the toxicity, topo tecan actually had more toxicity as expected around myelosuppression. Um, so at least in this more recent data, showing that there might be a benefit to using combination chemo. Um, if we look at the, the 2006 uh, trial on the left panel that led ultimately to um, uh, FDA approval of, of topotecan, that showed um, patients that were treated with topotecan versus best supportive care. And um, the benefit, the overall response rate for topo is around 7%, best supportive care was less. So this really, you know, provided our, our um, rationale for using topotecan. Uh, the left panel is PO. Uh, the right panel is is IV. Uh, it looks like there's a little bit be benefit to the the PO regimen. Actually, that's something that I use during COVID uh, much more for our second line folks who wanted to stay out of the office and and to have an oral oral therapy. Although it is still myelosuppressive, you can see that. Um, actually, you probably can't see that here, but uh, on the left, the table is uh, for PO, and then on the right, the toxicities for IV. And just as expected, really mainly myelosuppression, uh, leukopenia, neutropenia, thrombocytopenia, anemia. So um, these are these are toxicities that you can support the patient through. You can dose reduce a little bit, but then we have growth factors and things to help with that uh, trilocyclib. Um, so what other option do we have now? This is lorbanectin, which we're really excited because it's the second. Uh, FDA-approved regimen that's um, approved for, for second line. And this is the rationale for use in, in small cell as a translationally active disease. So um, small cell is often characterized by P53 and RB loss, P53 mutations and RB loss, make amplification. And LERBI works in a number of different ways. It binds to DNA promoters. Um, prevents transcription. That's what's seen in this area over here. Lurby's binding to the DNA, preventing transcription factors from, from binding. Uh, and that inhibits uh, transcription and then affects a lot of different processes, including uh, apoptosis, uh, tumor proliferation, angiogenesis, immune suppression, uh, that tumor microenvironment. And it also binding here, you can see that um, it's leading to RNA pol um, 2 degradation. So there are a number of different methods and how it works. What we care about is the efficacy. Um, and, and this is a trial. Here you can see all patients in this column. This is resistant disease. In other words, patients who relapsed within 90 days. And this is uh, considered platinum sensitive um, longer than like 90 days. Um, and the PFS here is, you know, this is what I tell my patients, the PFS is around three, three and a half. It's a little less for the platinum-resistant patients and it's a little more than uh, for the platinum-sensitive patients. And then here for overall survival, again, 9.3 months, it's a little bit less for the platinum-resistant, that's five, and it's a little bit more for the, um, it's considerably more for the patients who are platinum-sensitive um, with 12 months. Um, this, I think, is is what we we want to see for our patients. The duration of response um, in sensitive disease is around six months versus five months, and that's the swimmer's plot. So you can see patients that are on this for a while, and, and that's what I tell my patients. We're trying to, um, this is a marathon, so we want to develop different tools. So let's get you on some clinical trials, and Dr. Borgai is going to talk about those new, uh, new, new agents, um, but uh, sometimes in the interim, you have to, you have to bridge the patients. And this can be a very uh, useful drug for that. Um, the main side effects here, really the neutropenia, 20% uh, grade three and 25% grade four, and then fatigue, um, you know, mainly grade one and two, 50% of the patients. So it's pretty well tolerated. Um, and so that I think is our standard of care. The phase three Atlantis trial came out and we were a little disappointed because that was negative. This is a Lurby plus doxorubicin versus Topo in the phase three setting. Um, but if you look at the dose here with the doxorubicin, it was it was lowered. It was two milligrams per meter squared um, as opposed to what you use in monotherapy, which is 3.2. Uh, I, I wanted to highlight this cohort of patients, 50 patients who actually, after 10 cycles of, um, of treatment, actually went to monotherapy uh, with the higher dose of Lurby. And if you look at the next slide, 
uh, this shows you that in in those patients, uh, those 50 patients, if you had a PR, the 26 that had a PR, actually their best response on the monotherapy, three actually ups, you know, got a better response with a CR. Um, 15 remained at a PR and, and eight had progression. And in the stable disease um, cohort, 19 patients, again, three of those patients actually with the monotherapy had um, either a CR or a PR. So um, I think that's, that's, you know, makes me think that maybe that dosage uh, for the monotherapy, higher dosage may, may have more of an effect. Okay. So this data has led to the NCCN recommendations for, for second line therapy. Um, if you have a chemo free interval of six months um, or more, then the preferred regimen is either a clinical trial or retreatment with a platinum-based doublet. And um, there are other options, the lorbinectidin, if you have issues with, um, uh, for example, the platinum, um, and, and, and of course, topotecan, iridotecan, although I would, I would probably not use those. If your chemo-free interval is less than six months, then again, the preferred regimen, clinical trial, lorbinectidin, as I spoke to you about, um, the overall response rates over there around 30%, a little bit lower for, for um, platinum-resistant disease in the 20s, and then a little bit higher for, for the patients who are in the platinum-sensitive disease around in the 40s or above. Um, Topotecan, as I spoke to you about, irinotecan, or retreatment um, can be considered in that three to six months. That's, that's uh, a little bit of a gray area. And then we do have in the literal gray area over here other recommended uh, regimens, including uh, Nevo or Pembro, if, if patients have not been previously treated with an immune checkpoint inhibitor. And we'll talk a little bit about how important it is to get, get patients um, exposed to some immunotherapy. Uh, taxanes have been quite useful. I find in my practice, if they have CNS disease, uh, sometimes trying Temidar. Um, CAV, uh, you know, this was our comparator arm for all those trials with the platinum doublet. And I had a young gentleman, um, 45, who was uh, who went on to a, a trope two trial, did quite well, and then Lurby, and then a taxane, and um, was still working, right? And so I said, okay, he has a really great performance status. Put him on CAV. He just got scans last week, and he responded very well. So that's still an effective regimen. Uh, for patients who have a performance status and you think can still um, manage therapy. Okay, so uh, piggybacking onto Dr. Owanakoko's case, that patient, his patient was successfully initiated on EP and Derva. He completed four cycles of induction chemotherapy with delays in initiating cycle three and four because of the delayed count recovery. Um, he transitioned to Dervalumab maintenance and then the restaging scans after seven cycles uh, of, of monthly maintenance DERVA unfortunately demonstrated multiple new or progressive hepatic lesions. The MRI of the brain shows eight subcentimeter parenchymal lesions consistent with metastases and without edema. Um, he still has a good PS and he wants to explore other therapeutic options. So, um, uh, Dr. Wanakoko and Dr. Borgay, what would you recommend for this patient? Yeah, so I think you you don't ever go wrong by saying clinical trials, <laughs> but then we don't have clinical trials in this room. So we have to recommend something else that's appropriate for the patient. So this is someone with um, polymetastatic disease, both in the brain and extracranially. Granted that they had very, very long chemotherapy-free interval, but for me, some of the factors that I take into consideration in terms of what I do for salvage is how did they do with that frontline therapy? This was a patient where you had some delays in cycle three and cycle four of the frontline therapy. So I may not be as enthusiastic about re-challenging this patient with uh, platinum doublet. Uh, the second is that you have this extensive disease in the brain that you also have to factor into. So you have to at least address that first. And, um, Right now, we know we can do both SRS as well as whole brain radiation treatment. Uh, some people will go up to 10 uh, for SRS, and beyond that, they will offer whole brain radiation. But given the appearance and the size of the lesion, this may be a patient that most likely will fail 
much more quickly in the brain than anywhere else. And therefore, I may be bearing more towards whole brain radiation therapy. So back to your question, I think this may be a patient where I do not want to do platinum rechallenge, even though they had a long simultaneous free interval just because they struggled with that front line. And then the other option where you be the things like the next day and and uh, clinical trials appropriate. I agree. Um, I think I would address the brain um, uh, as well. And this is a very collaborative effort between the medical oncologist, the patient, and of course the radiation oncologist. I agree that we're pushing the envelope a little bit when it comes to SRS with brain, but uh, eight uh, sub-centimeter lesions uh, in, in a patient with metastatic small cell. Uh, I absolutely agree with you that it's going to cause more problems. So I think um, that old brain should definitely be discussed despite all the difficulties that it has. Um, I would say that here I will be a little bit more willing to retry the platinum metoposide. Uh, remember, this patient has cytopenias to start with, which we thought were due to disease. So perhaps some of the earlier difficulties were related to that. Myelosuppression is something that we know. Um, can happen with different regimens. So um, given the seven months period, I think, uh, or seven cycles, um, I'm a little bit more willing to consider the platinumethoposide, but at the side of the first uh, real problem in terms of tolerability, I'm more than happy to go to uh, lorbenectadine uh, in that setting. Yeah, I, exactly. I think I agree with both of you. I, I Because he does have brain um, mets, um, I do think they need treatment. Lerbinectin, that was a relatively small trial. They did not have brain meds. So I, I I, might think about doing, I would probably do the platinum doublet again, um, just because I want to give them more time in terms of the tools that we use. Uh, but I would definitely put them in a clinical trial if I had the choice. So would, excellent. Would either one of you continue after whole brain radiation, just stay with the IO? Because there's no evidence of systemic progression. It's just CNS. But he does have the liver. So, but you're, but I think that's a really good point. If you, if they're on Derva or IO and they have oligoprogressive disease and yeah. can radiate it, um, we do, we do radiate it and try to continue and, and get a little more out of that IO. Good point. Okay. I'm glad to see we all do stuff without data, but. Um. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, actually, we do have one other alternative scenario. That's right, seventy-year-old woman who presented with limited stage, and she was treated with platinum metoposide concurrent radiation. Um, Four months after completion of chemotherapy, so in that gray zone, she had three new liver mets that are approximately one centimeter each. The biopsy did demonstrate and confirm recurrence. She's asymptomatic. No clinical trial available today. What would you choose next? Dr. Borgai, what do you think of this? She yeah. hasn't had, yeah. hasn't so, had IO. This is a tough one, right? Um, Unfortunately, we see this in the clinic. So, I mean, uh, this is something that happens. So I look at that four months after completion of platinum metoposide, and um, I'm not going to go into the discussion with 180 days and 90 days. So that's a totally separate discussion. But I'm saying this is 120 days from the last platinum metoposide, technically a little bit over the 90-day platinum sensitive resistant idea that we've seemed to have settled on instead of the 180 days. So I would argue here that in the presence of liver metastases and the fact that I don't have a clinical trial option or anything like that, I would probably use platinumetoposide with an IO as a re-challenge. But um, this is a patient that I would be very worried about, uh, meaning that probably right after the first couple of cycles, I will do another CAT scan, um, make sure that we have any uh, some sort of a response or disease stability. Uh, because I think this is, uh, unfortunately, the, the patient who's um, going to have rapid progression, and, and therefore we're going to need to capture that. But I don't know if any of the other options right now are, are as attractive to me. Um, and, and I have nothing against Lorby in a setting like this, but I'm not sure that the trials necessarily include that patients like this. So that's the way I argue for it. Dr. Wadikoska? You know, we put all these cases here just to show what we all deal with in the clinic. You know, our patients don't come well prepared with something that we can just give them simple answers. So this is a very, very complex one. But I do agree with Dr. Borgai. I think my own philosophy these days is none of our patients should go through their treatment course without some exposure to immunotherapy, given the potential for that to benefit them. So 
this patient technically will qualify for rechallenge, and because they've not been exposed to IO, I think that gives you the opportunity of chemo plus IO rechallenge. So that would be a reason for me to consider that as my first uh, option of treatment. Yeah, agree. I, there's no. This is a tricky one, and it comes up all the time. Um, but I do agree. I want to expose that patient to IO. Uh, they just went through platinum doublet. It's in that gray zone, the three to six months. So I think I would do. I would choose number one as well. But it doesn't mean that that's the right answer. We'll see with the patient. So thank you so much. I think that's my last slide. Yes, thank you. Okay, so we're going to go into um, uh, this evolving field. All right. So we've heard a lot uh, about the biological subtypes of small cell lung cancer in a recent meeting. And um, the, the data is still accumulating. This is a very fluid area, as uh, you have seen in multiple meetings. Um, what we think right now is that the differential expression of these transcription regulators uh, can actually define, um, um, if you want, different subsets, although um, I think we're learning that these subsets are very fluid, meaning that the treatment is this sort of a transitional state for some of the cancers that we're seeing. But uh, three or four basic subtypes of uh, non-small cell lung cancer have been um, identified through uh, this differential expression of all the transcription factors, the ACL1, NeuroD1, and the POW2F3. And they do seem to have different percentages in terms of the patient or tumors that um, have features that would classify them as ACL1 or one of the other ones. Um, subtypes based on neuroendocrine features have also been uh, sort of discussed, uh, the, the A and the A, so the classical small cell, as we used to call it, versus sort of the non-neuroendocrine type of small cell. And this phenomenon of immune infiltrated or inflamed small cell lung cancer all are, are based on these transcriptional signatures. Um, so the, the gene expression analysis uh, has been in the background, and we've been trying to figure out if this can really be a biomarker for selecting patients for various treatments. So uh, one of the uh, really interesting retrospective data that has come out is uh, looking at long-term survivors from Empower 133 and looking at the gene expression profiling of these tumors and sort of to uh, come up with uh, an idea as to whether some of these subtypes uh, that can, in fact, translate to this long-term survivor. And this is one of the um, uh, information that has been um, uh, already published and, and uh, sort of discussed at various meetings. So on the left-hand side, you have the gene expression heat maps, uh, very familiar for those of you who've been in this area, uh, looking at the basically the, the four subtypes separated right um, on top. You should look at the Kaplan-Meier curves. On the right-hand side, so the, the blue curve, as you can see, is this uh, sort of the inflamed small cell subtype. And there is, at least based on the retrospective data, there's an indication or a suggestion that perhaps this patient population is benefiting a bit more compared to the all other um, subtypes of small cell in terms of overall survival from this analysis. Um, we also have, uh, um, uh, uh, the, again, a similar analysis done uh, with um, uh, other subtypes, and you can see the hazard ratios by subtype on the bottom here. And even though the confidence intervals are really uh, long and, and, and some of them do cross one, probably because of the numbers here, again, the hazard ratios seen with um, I and maybe P seem to be um, a little bit more interesting. The question really is, is this something that we can use to um, select patients for specific treatments or not? Um, and this is a sort of a bar graph. First of all, these are uh, percentage of patients to um, uh, um, look at enrichment for the long-term survivors in this patient population. So these, um, these trends, as we like to call them, of course, are non-significant. But in the TASER arm, 55% uh, of patients were uh, in the uh, long-term survival group if they had the small cell inflamed subtype. Um, and uh, also a higher percentage uh, of uh, this particular subtype uh, were um, in the long-term survivor versus none. Again, all these, is this an indication that this is a biomarker for us to select patients? I think obviously a lot more work needs to uh, be done um, to, to really establish this as something we can use for patient selection. And again, I would sort of emphasize, as you saw in the 
um, a hazard ratio uh, curves on the forest floor that the subtypes, all of them seem to have some benefit from the treatment. Um, so Caspian also looking at the uh, uh, Dora plus um, uh, EP or the platinum doublet. And again here, um, something that is uh, standing out is that this um, YAP1 positive, I want to get into lap, uh, YAP1 a little bit later on in a couple of slides, um, also seem to be uh, a subtype that could potentially have a significantly better outcome uh, with uh, the addition of a, a checkpoint inhibitor to platinum doublet uh, based on, again, this rather small retrospective um, analysis. So this is uh, uh, published by the Dr. Rudin's group. Uh, this has been published by um, uh, Dr. Gay's group. And I think uh, the YAP1 and the inflamed subtypes are probably the same subtype of tumors that we uh, are discussing. So again, uh, there is some data emerging that perhaps based on this molecular sub-analysis, we could identify potentially patients who would benefit from uh, treatment. Now, keep in mind, these are all obviously first-line studies. We did not look at anything like this in the second line, at least based on what we have here. Um, so patients with these, um, uh, the other biomarker of interest is this, um, um, uh, the inflamed signature uh, that if they have the um, higher expression, and I think we can get into the discussion as to how high versus low was uh, defined in these particular studies because we don't discuss that here. Again, there's a suggestion that that patient population is benefiting from the addition of um, immunotherapy uh, to the platinum doublet. So what is YAP and what's the role that it plays uh, in uh, the small cell subtypes? And this is uh, the data from Dr. Owen uh, uh, uh laboratory. So the, the hypothesis here is sort of shown in the bottom is the YAP1, a subtype um, that really uh, uh, stands out as having features that allow these tumors to be a little bit more inflamed and therefore possibly responsive uh, to uh, the immunotherapy. Um, I don't think I'm going to go through the heat map analysis slide by slide, uh, but I think the data there uh, suggests that you can identify this particular subtype. So if you look at the clinical data, and here going back to Checkmate um, 032, which again, Dr. Uh, Owen Coco had um, presented, if I remember correctly, and, and, and PI'd, and this is an analysis done by Dr. Rudin's group. Um, the uh, progression-free survival, I have to say, if you're using Nevo alone, I think it's hard to say that there is really uh, any separation when you get to the EPI-Nevo. There's again a suggestion, as we like to call it, some sort of a trend uh, towards possibly um, standing out as something that could uh, suggest a slight benefit on the overall survival. Again, with Nevo alone, I think I have a hard time saying there's significant separation. I have to say with the Nevo Epi, one thing that's clear is that one site type really doesn't seem to necessarily have a lot of advantage from uh, from all of this. So why, um, yeah, one, it uh, appears for, again, mechanistically, I'm not sure we quite understand it, but Tumors with YAP1 expression seem to have a better antigen presentation machinery in general, antigen presentation being interesting and, and essential for a good um, immune response. And therefore, the idea here is that the trend that we see with the YAP1 expression could, in fact, suggest that these tumors are more uh, prone to a proper antigen presentation in the presence of a checkpoint inhibitor. Uh, the, the T cells can do a better job, and therefore that, that is the reason we're seeing this trend towards improvement in survival. Um, whether this really is going to stand out in further studies obviously needs to be determined, and also mechanistically, uh, I'm not sure, again, we have an explanation as to what YAP1 necessarily does, but uh, the, 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 the immune infiltration signature is uh, a little bit more uh, expressed in the YAP1-positive tumors. So... Um, uh, this data is going to percolate a little bit more. I'm sure we're going to see additional studies, uh, and uh, I'll be interested to see if my colleagues think this is ready for prime time, so to speak, meaning that are we ready to actually pull the trigger on a clinical trial where we would select patients for an immunotherapy type of approach in small cell lung cancer based on uh, the inflamed or the out one positive um, phenotype. So what else are we doing here? So um, uh, some of you have seen uh, the data with this particular agent. This is uh, an, an anti-Fiocastol GM1 um, antibody from BMS. This was taken in the clinical trial. 
combining it with carboplatin etoposide and uh, nivolumab, about 120 patients. Um, there was some stratification based on liver metastases and ECOG performance status. Smaller study, phase two, but uh, you know, appropriate size for phase two, I would say. There's a standard induction with um, sort of the four drug regimen versus probably what we would consider to be uh, sort of more of a standard, although we all know that nivolumab hasn't been approved in this setting yet. And then the maintenance arm was, again, nivolumab alone versus the combination of um, the 96012 drug in combination with um, nivolumab. The treatment was every four weeks. And as is appropriate for more, most phase twos, um, the, the primary endpoint really here uh, was more of a safety, tolerability, and uh, PFS. Um, so um, I think we're going to sort of um, uh, assess this once the data is available. We also have uh, uh, this prospective phase one, two study called the Looper trial. So what is this one? This uh, sort of takes advantage of the fact that lorbenectadine is an active drug, as we have seen uh, based on the data um, uh, that Dr. Chang already presented. Uh, uh, and uh, it, there is, a, as you saw, the mechanism of action for this particular drug. Besides its primary function, lorbenectadine does seem to have an effect on the tumor microenvironment such that uh, it might be able to alter the tumor microenvironment in a way that becomes a little bit more immune permissive as opposed to uh, the typical immune suppressive microenvironment. And therefore, the idea here was in conjunction with a checkpoint inhibitor like pembrolizumab, uh, perhaps there could be uh, clinical efficacy. Uh, fairly standard inclusion exclusion criteria, fairly standard dosing um, regimen, although slightly lower dose of Lorby was taken into this combination, which again, I think uh, it makes sense. So, so there was a run-in for safety, uh, followed by a dose expansion uh, in, a, in a single arm study. And the waterfall plots are, again, suggest that um, this is an interesting combination. The primary objective was met, as you see here, uh, with a, uh, a response rate of around 45, 46%, which I think for a patient population that has had prior treatment, it makes this um, interesting, promising uh, uh, regimen. The median PFS, I still think, is uh, pretty decent, five months. Um, and uh, uh, this is uh, divided between platinum-resistant and platinum-sensitive patients down here. Again, there's no surprise the platinum-sensitive patient population always does better, as we know, in terms of PFS in these studies. So again, I don't think there's necessarily any surprises here. Um, and uh, the responses, um, um, as you can see on the waterfall plot, are seen um, uh, regardless of whether patients had platinum sensitive or resistant. What about safety? It always becomes a, a problem. So you see on the table here the most common, really severe grade three or four uh, toxicities were fatigue, uh, neutropenia, and some uh, nausea and anemia. Um, I think fatigue, unfortunately, is very common for most of the treatments that we use. Uh, in our patients with uh, small cell lung cancer or really any kind of lung cancer. Um, uh, and I think the neutropenia, nausea, uh, and anemia is something that we have seen with lorbenectadine in other um, studies. So again, no real new safety signals uh, that come out sort of being worrisome. So uh, the, the, the main issue is that you have a very limited patient population. The real, the real question is, uh, can this be extended? And what happens if you take this to um, a, a larger patient population in a randomized study. So what are some of the ongoing um, studies? Uh, again, uh, this is a, uh, a confirmatory phase three study for lorbenectadine called the Lagoon trial. Uh, it's a rather large study, uh, particularly for small cell, but 700 patients or so. Randomization to standard dose of lorbenectadine versus lorbi plus sorantitecan, uh, and uh, basically a physician choice option that includes um, uh, topotecan or iranotecan. The primary endpoint here is overall survival. Secondarily, looking at PFS and other factors, as you see um, on, um, on the slide. We also know that there is another trial um, called the Forte study. This is a randomized phase three trial where the, in, the four cycles of induction is basically platinum um, uh, etoposide plus atezolizumab, and then for patients who are not having any evidence of disease progression, there's randomization to atezol plus lorbenectadine versus atezol alone. Uh, and uh, the study is still enrolling, and we're hoping that we can get there. Um, 
Uh, other interesting combinations are also being evaluated. We're not going to talk about PARP inhibitors really at part of this session, but that has been an area of interest. Uh, some of the other trials that are on the way are shown in uh, uh, on this slide. So the NRG study still on the way testing uh, radiation. Um, uh, the role of thoracic radiation and radiation to metastatic sites while we're doing maintenance immunotherapy. I think that's a practice-informing um, study. As you heard, sometimes we continue the I.O. and radiate the uh, progressive disease. Uh, the other one is uh, we're still waiting for the results of the um, Adriatic, the, the Energy Alliance group, the NU005 study, and then a couple of other trials. Uh, hopefully, um, uh, establishing uh, whether immunotherapy has a role in limited stage small cell, which is, again, something we haven't talked about. And then um, I, I don't know if you were at the session yesterday that Dr. Onokoko was at, uh, but there are up to 270 different trials in small cell. And 20 years of doing lung cancer, I've, I don't think I've ever seen this many studies in lung cancer. So I think that's important. So what else is coming? Um, there's been uh, a lot of interest generated, and again, full disclosure, um, I've been uh, part of uh, the, the clinical team uh, that has worked with terlatumab, so uh, I don't want um, to sort of not be transparent and talk about that. Um, there's been a lot of interest in bites, so these are bispecific T-cell engagers. These are basically very small antibody structures that don't necessarily have an FC component, uh, they are capable of targeting two different antigens. One usually is a, a, a CD3 to bring the T cells into the close proximity to a tumor by engaging through the other arm of this uh, structure, a tumor antigen. The tumor antigen that's chosen in this case is DLL3, which is highly overexpressed in most uh, small cell lung cancers. And the good thing about it is that, at least based on what we know now, there's either no expression or very little expression on normal tissue. So this basically generates what we used to call an immunological synapse to bring the immune system in uh, close proximity to the T cell. The original formulation of these drugs had very, very short half-life because, uh, again, it's a very small structure, but these half-life extended structures that now we have, uh, they look more like antibodies that have a little bit of better um, uh, uh, um, uh, sort of circulatory time, and therefore you don't have to administer them. Um, uh, on a on a on a uh, continuous infusion, um, they can come in a variety of different structures, as you see here. Uh, one of the uh, earlier one that has uh, gone through a quite extensive clinical evaluation is the AMG757 knockout perlatumab. Um, so the what you see on the slide is uh, combined results of two separate studies. These are called Delphi. Uh, I don't know if I can explain to you where that name or acronym comes from, but it is what it is. Um, so it has gone through a very extensive, I would say, phase one study and then a phase two, looking at two separate doses of this, uh, uh, of this um, antibody uh, drug conjugate. I think if you concentrate on the phase two that was just presented at ESMO and then subsequently published by Dr. Pazarez and uh, some of us on the, on the panel, um, the two doses that were chosen were the 10 milligram dose and 100 milligram dose, and you see that the response rate are actually pretty good for a drug that's been taken into a patient population that's heavily pretreated with small cell. Um, uh, uh, I think uh, on the, um, uh, I don't think we have the PFS or our survival curves here. Um, what is more impressive is that the durability of these responses are actually pretty good, which again, in the world of small cell, we really haven't seen. Um, and given the fact that the two doses seem to be very similar, I think the, the, the 10 milligram dose is probably something that we're going to see for the development. Now, and what about safety? Well, obviously, a drug that engages the, the, the immune system, you worry about uh, uh, immune-related adverse events. And in this case, um, the, the CRS events, uh, the cytokine um, release syndrome has been observed. Majority of these are um, grades one and two, but I would caution the grade one, two CRS can still be serious, and if not diagnosed and mitigated, the patients could progress to uh, higher grades. But overall, the safety profile of the agent seems to be uh, good. Uh, so far, we've been doing this based on uh, patients needing hospitalization, but there are different cohorts now looking at whether we can get rid of the hospitalization with this particular agent. And I think we are making good progress. The other adverse events uh, that we have seen with this uh, particular agent are shown here. Some patients do experience fever, which could also be a sign of the CRS, but constipation, anemia, and a variety of other um, adverse events have been reported. 
In the interest of time, we're not going to cover all the other bytes targeting DLL3, but you need to know that there are a couple of other agents, uh, Boringer Engelheim, Harpoon, all of these uh, agents are now undergoing clinical trial and evaluation. Some of them are at their earlier stage. And then interestingly, the, the DLL core T, um, and again, I I thought one of these uh, studies was discontinued, but I think there is still interest in uh, evaluating that aspect of it. Um, we also have um, uh, antibody drug conjugates in the world of small cell. Again, uh, many of these are uh, in sort of earlier stages of development with small numbers. Interesting response rates and durability. So again, a lot of different clinical trials now um, uh, looking at the antibody drug conjugate. Uh, an example of this is the IDXD uh, uh, drug. A very typical antibody drug conjugate with the toxin, antibody, and the linker there. Um, and again, taking this into a clinical um, trial, um, the response rate in a limited number of patients across many different doses have been seen with a confirmed um, you know, response rate of around 50% in about uh, 21 patients, uh, heavily pretreated. Uh, the other one that we have had some um, uh, data for is um, actually trope 2, which, again, it seems to be highly overexpressed in a variety of tumors, including high-grade neuroendocrine tumors. There are a couple of different antibody drug conjugates. The, the one that, again, has most data right now is sasituzumab, uh, but a variety of other um, antibody drug conjugates are also being evaluated. In the interest of time, I think I'm going to bypass some of the earlier the, the results that have been presented. A lot of these um, have been uh, discussed at various uh, meetings. All right. I think with that, um, thank you for your attention and thank you for spending early morning with us. I want to thank all my uh, co-speakers as well as the audience in person as well as online. Thank you all for joining us and uh, thanks to all the sponsors and Peerview for putting this together. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash ZZA860. This activity is supported by an independent educational grant from AstraZeneca.